St. Warburg's Derby. If you don't know me, my name's Andy, I'm the Associate Minister here, and if you're a guest or your first time here, just want to say ever so good to see you, and I'm going to pray before I begin. Father God, thank you for this evening. I pray that you would open our ears to what you've got for us. Amen. Who are you? Who are you? I don't know if you've ever sat on the football terraces or even stood outside the Premier League shouting that at an opposite team. Something people often do. And it's, it's part of um, the question that we're asking of ourselves in our series on, our, on identity this term. We're thinking about who are you? Recently I read an interview with the actor Jim Carrey and he says this. He says, playing Andy Kaufman in Man on the Moon in 1999, I realised that I could lose myself in a character. I could live in a character. It was a choice. And when I finished with that, I took a month to remember who I was. What did I believe? What are my politics? What do I like and dislike? It took me a while and I was depressed going back into my concerns and my politics. But there was a shift that had already happened. And the shift was, wait a second. If I can put Jim Carrey aside for four months, who is Jim Carrey? Who on earth is he? And in that interview, it's really sad. He basically moves to a place of saying he doesn't really think that Jim Carrey exists. He's just a bunch of different roles and characters that he plays. He doesn't really think there is anything at the core of who he is. And so my question to us this evening is, are you just a bunch of roles that you play? Are you just a bunch of different characters you play in different circumstances? Or is there something at your core? And if there is something at your core, how do you know who it is? How do we form our identity? Earlier this year, I was at a conference on identity in Christ, and it was a great day looking at this idea of identity, and the speaker said that identity is about two things. It's about our sense of self, so what do you think is the most important thing in the world? What is the thing that you are living for? What is the thing that drives you? And then your sense of worth, are you living up to that thing? Okay, so let's say, for example, health is your most important thing in life. Are you living up to that? Do you get down the gym a lot? Do you watch what you eat? What's your body fat index? What's your BMI? That would be how you'd measure if you're living up to that thing. I hope that makes sense, self and worth. And every culture throughout history has had different ways of forming identity. And there are two ways in which we can form identity. And if you've been around church much, you'll probably know this evening's story inside out. But if you're new to this God thing, if you're new to church, then I want to introduce you to one of the most beautiful, powerful, incredible stories of Jesus. It's written by a guy called Luke. It's in the kind of biography about Jesus, uh, the gospel of Luke. He's a doctor who investigated stuff and he wrote it down because he thought people needed to know. And so if you've got a Bible with you this evening or you've got a Bible app on your phone, I'd encourage you to turn to Luke chapter 15. The chapters are the big numbers, the verses are the little numbers. So if you've got one with you, that would be amazing. If you don't own a Bible, come and speak to me at the end. We would love to give you a Bible because we believe that reading it will change your life. 
So Luke chapter 15, verse 11 is where we're going to begin, and it will appear on the screens behind me, if you haven't got it on your phone or with you. Luke 15, 11. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went out and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him out to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, But no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and I'll go back to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and he ran to him. He was filled with compassion. He threw his arms around him. He kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf. Let's have a feast and celebrate. This son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the elder son was in the field. And when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your father, so your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he's come back safe and sound. The elder brother became angry and he refused to go in. So his father went out and he pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and I've never disobeyed your orders. You never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and he is alive again. He was lost and he is found. And if we were in a traditional Anglican church, we'd say, this is the word of the Lord. And a few people responded, thanks be to God. (laughs) Our reading begins with Jesus continued, because it's the third parable, the third story that Jesus tells about lost things. Jesus shared about a lost sheep and a lost coin, and now he moves to talking about lost sons. You see, it comes in response to criticism from the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the kind of religious leaders, the vicars, the priests of the day. 
They weren't very happy about who Jesus was hanging out with. It's always important to find the context of what Jesus was saying. He doesn't speak out of a vacuum. There's always a response to something. There's always a reason why he's saying what he's saying. Really important to know that, to understand what's going on. Often when this story is told, it's called the prodigal son, as if it's only about one son. But actually, Jesus says there was a man who had two sons. And unusually, I'd like to begin by looking at the elder son. I said a few minutes ago that there are two ways of forming identity. And so when Phil said we were doing a series on identity, I thought, you know what, I'm going to order a book on identity, the kind of, the, the, the book that was referenced in this day I went to on identity. But when it came from eBay, it was a lot thicker than it looked like on the picture. And when I tried to start reading it, I, I mean, I put it up on Instagram to make me look smart, but then I tried to start reading it, and to be honest, I couldn't make head nor tail of it. So we're going to leave that there, and I'm going to use it as a doorstop, um, and I'm going to use somebody else's summary of Charles Taylor's work. He's an incredible Catholic philosopher, and he talks about identity formation. He says that in traditional societies, so going back, people formed identity in two ways. Firstly, you had your tribe, your village, your family, your community that you were part of. And if they wanted you to do something, that's what you would become. So if your dad was a carpenter, you'd become a carpenter. Jesus' dad was a carpenter, he became a carpenter. If you were a young lady, your mother was a mother, obviously, but actually you would just go on and become a mother. You wouldn't think of anything else. That was just what would happen more often than not. So your role was decided for you. The other way that you formed identity in those places was that everybody agreed what was right and what was wrong. A god or gods, depending on which society you lived in, would have handed down something, and then the whole area agreed on what was right and what was wrong. So you knew how you were to live. You had an understanding of what was right and what was wrong. And you understand what's happening here is these ideals are coming in from the outside. Yourself and your worth. They're coming from other people around you. Your tribe, your village, your community, your family, in morality and in terms of what you should be. And much of the world outside of the West still works like this, actually. If you want to think about books or films where we see this happening, if you think of The Lord of the Rings, if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, there's lots in there about sacrifice and honour. There's clear definitions of what is right and what is wrong. That's the kind of way that you lived in line with it. You sacrificed yourself for the community. You lived for honour. That was how traditional societies worked, and that was how you got your identity. I hope that that kind of makes sense. But what about the elder son in Jesus' story? Well, I would argue that the elder son is very much like this traditional identity formation. You see, the elder son was out in the field, and he wasn't flying a kite, he wasn't pushing over cows. He had gone into the family business. His dad was out doing that. That's what he would do. He stayed with the father doing what was expected of him. Not only that, he says that he slaved for his father. He knew what was expected. He knew what was right. He knew what was wrong. And therefore, he walked into that. He says, I never disobeyed your orders. I tried to live rightly. Now, how might this look now? My dad um, is a, a professor of astrophysics and all sorts of other funny things. And he's, he's got a line that he says, education is good, more education is better. 
and he trots it out on a regular basis. I think he will probably have it on his tombstone. And he's half joking because it's something he's lived out. He got his bachelor's, he got his master's, he got his PhD, he's done research, he's published paper after paper after paper. For him, education is the highest good. And he's measured his worth by how well he does at that. And if I chose to absorb that and to live into that, then I'd have to get my bachelor's and master's and PhD. And that would be how I'd measure my identity. And over the last few hundred years in the West, we have rejected this way of forming our identity. And so let's turn to the other son in Jesus' parable. He's the one who normally gets a lot more press in these kind of sermons. If the elder son is the traditional way of forming identity, the younger son is the one that we see around us in our culture. You see, in a traditional society, society people looked around them for where to get their identity, to where to get their morals. But now we're told to look inside ourselves, to find ourselves told to go inwards. How often do we watch X Factor or Love Island or Big Brother and they say, if you don't like who I am, you can do one, or words to that effect. Basically, I know who I am. It's all about me. I've looked into myself and I know what I'm about. I don't care what you think about me. It's all about what's in here. And so we run away from the things that would have traditionally formed our identity, our religion, our community, our tribe, our village. And not only that, But we don't have an agreed definition of what's right and wrong. We have what's right for me, or what's wrong for me, what's right for you, what's wrong for you. There's no objective morality. We just make it up as we go along. Can you see these two ways of forming identity are complete opposites? The elder brother and the younger brother, they're just complete opposites of one another. And I would say that the younger son is like this. Because he rejects the father. He says, Father, give me my share of your inheritance, which is equivalent to saying, I wish you were dead. Give me the money incredibly shameful in that culture, disgraceful thing to do. I mean, it's not nice here, let's be honest, but in that culture, horrendous. He sets off for a distant country, so he leaves the family business, he leaves the family, he leaves the village, and he goes off and does whatever he likes. He goes off to find himself. He squanders himself, squanders the wealth in wild and reckless living, potentially prostitutes if the elder brother's telling the truth. So he's kind of making up his morality as he goes on. There's no objective right and wrong. I'm just going to do what I think is right for me. He spends everything. And do you know what? This idea of identity is all around us. I don't know if you've seen the picture of two fish. And they're swimming towards one another. And one fish says to the other fish, how's the water today? And the other fish says, what's water? They're so used to swimming in the water, they don't even know they're in it. And I would say that's like us in this culture in the West. This idea of our forming identity, it's so prevalent, we don't even see it. Now, I'm a dad of a six-year-old. So um, I'm very, very familiar with the film Frozen. Can I just get a show of hands? Who's seen Frozen? Who knows the song Let It Go? Good, okay, that's, that's helpful for my analogy. I need to be honest with you, I probably haven't watched the whole of Frozen all the way through, but I've seen lots of it over the years. And I want to think about Elsa. The high point of the song, of the film, is Let It Go. And you've got that amazing scene where she kind of, she, she starts walking up the stairs and she takes her hair out and she just looks amazing. And then her village is being plunged into an eternal winter. And she sings this, she says, It's time to see what I can do 
to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. And we love it. And yet, I turned to Tibby when we were watching it one day. It's my daughter. And I said, Tibby, can you imagine if you were in the playground and there was no right and no wrong and no rules? She said, yeah, that would be stupid, Daddy. I said, yeah, it would be. Just nuts. And yet we, we sing it. We love it. You see, Elsa doesn't sacrifice for her village. She's got no sense of honour with what's going on. It's all about pursuing herself and finding herself and expressing herself. And woe betides her if she was to kind of have some self-control and hold back because we want her to go and find herself. And it's not just Elsa. I Did It My Way is one of the most popular songs at funerals. It's all about me. I did it my way. What about J.K. Rowling's Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them? Oh my goodness. If you're a wizard, don't have any self-control because that would be a catastrophe. Repressing yourself, you're going to destroy whole cities. It's all about me and myself and finding myself and my own morality. And you see, the prodigal son is an ancient story of a son rejecting his father and heading out. And in Jesus' day, when they heard this, they would have been shocked. They'd have been, that is disgraceful, that is horrendous. And yet, do you know what? I think if we were to make a film of this story today, we would be celebrating the younger son. We'd be saying, go for it. This is incredible. You're breaking free of tradition and your bigoted father's values. You go find yourself, express yourself, let it go. I think the younger son would be singing, let it go. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I genuinely do. So do you see, there are two ways of forming identity. There's the traditional way with the elder son. And there's the modern way, which is all around us, with the younger son. And there are some good things and there are some bad things about both of these. For the traditional son, the good thing, sorry, for the elder brother, rather, the traditional identity, there's a clear place in society for you. You know what your role is. There's clear rules to live by, which means that you're much more secure. Sounds good, doesn't it? But actually, also, if you were a minority, if you were of the wrong gender, the wrong race, the wrong class, you were stuck. Not so good for you. If you were, um, the other problem was that you were just simply part of a group. There wasn't much understanding of us as individuals. It was just en masse. So there were good things, but there were bad things about a traditional identity. What about now? I don't know if you can read them or not, but there are some good things about, it's not all bad. The whole idea of us as individuals came from a Christian worldview because we're made in the image and and likeness of God, as Phil spoke about last week. So we're seen as individuals. There's something good about that. And if you're of a minority grouping, there's a way out often, not always, but often there can be much more of a way out than there was back in the day. But actually, I would put to you this evening that our modern identity formation is incredibly messy. In fact, just awful in all kinds of ways. We are fragile because we, the only person that can validate us is the person in here. We're incoherent because one day we want to slim down, but we know that we all like ice cream, so my feelings chop and change. I don't know what I'm going to do. And that's just about ice cream. Sorry, just ice. But you know what I mean? Like, you know, one day you look at yourself 10 years ago and what you like then, and look at yourself now, and It's no way to build an identity because your feelings constantly change. It's crushing because if we don't live out and attain our own standards, we've got nowhere to go for our worth 
Or let's say we do somehow incredibly manage to attain that kind of way of living, we end up looking down on those who don't achieve it. We get superior and pride and arrogant. It's confusing. How do I know what to, what to do, what's right and what's wrong? Because I can only determine it inside myself. And as we said, our feelings change. Ten years ago, you might have thought one thing. Ten years from now, you might think another. Not great. And I would actually put to you as well that it's a sham. Because although we think we're getting it from inside, who are the people that are telling us to think like this? The media, our films, our magazines, our stories, our therapists. Actually, they're the ones. So there is a sense in which it's coming from outside. And actually, as we look at the younger son, it doesn't go really, really very well. He has fun for a little while, doesn't he? It's a bit of fun. But then he ends up broken, homeless and lonely and starving and unclean and alone, and he ends up lost. He ends up lost. And I would argue that both of the brothers end up lost from the father. Often when people hear about these two ideas of identity formation, they think, right, okay, Christians don't like this modern one. So they, want us to, they, they think we want to take them back to traditional, traditional identity. People like Douglas Murray in The Strange Death of Europe, people like Jordan Peterson would say, we need to go back. But actually, do you know what? There's a third way of forming identity. I don't want to take us back, and I don't want us to sit in the modern identity because it's a nightmare. There's the gospel. There's the good news of Jesus. You see, the younger son doesn't stay in the pigsty. He doesn't stay lost. Verse 17 says, when he came to his senses... He decides to try and go back to the father to work for him. He's trying to go back to that traditional identity. But do you know what happens? The gospel is something different. The gospel is unique. The gospel isn't good advice of what we need to do. It's good news about what Jesus has done. The gospel isn't a do. The gospel is a done. Our Christian identity is something that is received. It's not achieved. And so as the son goes back and he repents and he says, look, I'm sorry, I've sinned against you and against heaven, the father runs and embraces him, hugs him, kisses him, gives him a ring and a robe and sandals, gives him authority and intimacy. It's not deserved, but he receives it. Both of those sons were lost. One of them chooses to repent and is found. Why do I think that the gospel identity is so much better than the others. Let's jump on. It's stable, but it's based on a God who doesn't change. Our, if identity is found in the Father who loves us, he never changes. So whether I feel good or whether I feel bad, whether I'm in a bad day, whether things are going really wrong, it doesn't matter because he, he stays the same. It's hopeful because even when we screw up and don't live up to the standards that we set for ourselves, we know that there's forgiveness and there's grace. It's also humbling because even when we succeed, it's received and not achieved. And so therefore, we have no right to look down on other races, other religions, other genders, other orientations. We can't look down on them. We may disagree with them, but we can't look down on them because all we have is received and not achieved. Isn't that incredible? And it gives us clarity for knowing how to live. Because we don't have to keep asking ourselves, is this right, is this wrong? We know what God has said, and we just have to live it out, which is far more difficult to do than just to say. But actually, there's not that constant chopping and changing all the time. 
Now, you may be sitting there this evening, and I did see some glazed eyes this morning. I can't see you so well because of the lights. But you may be sitting there thinking, and this, this sounds all a bit academic. I mean, you may have not read that book to me, but it sounds to me like you've absorbed the stuff, and I'm not quite getting this. What difference does this make to me when I go into work this week on a Monday? What difference does this make to me when I'm sitting in the lecture hall trying to make notes? I guarantee you that you either get your identity from those around you affirming you, or you get it from inside, how, how you're doing what you believe life is all about. Are you living up to that? You get your identity from one of those two places. The elder brother, the younger brother. And you know what? I do think that so many, a number of our issues that our generation is wrestling with, the anxiety and the depression, not, in, not totally, but partly has its roots in this confusion around identity. If we truly grasp that we were loved by God, precious in his sight it wouldn't fluctuate in quite the same way and if if you really wrestle with that please don't take those condemnation at all I want to encourage you towards the one that loves you completely this evening you see the only place we're going to feel secure is putting our trust in someone who will never let us down whose burden is light and the gospel the good news of Jesus does that the running father does a disgraceful thing in that he runs to his son the loving father, father does a shocking thing in welcoming back a son who'd wished him dead. A, a forgiving father reinstates a son and in doing so bears the cultural shame that the son would have carried. And on the cross, Jesus did a disgraceful thing as he hung cursed on a tree. On the cross, Jesus does a shocking thing in welcoming a criminal on the cross next to him to paradise. And on the cross, Jesus cries out forgiveness for those who are harming him. And in that moment, he bore our sin and our shame that we might be reinstated in a relationship with the Father. I recently read a book by a secular journalist called John Ronson. And he says this, the way we construct our consciousness is to tell the story of ourselves to ourselves, the story of who we believe we really are. I'll read that again because it sounds a bit challenging. The way we construct our consciousness in terms of this bit is to tell the story of ourselves to ourselves. The story of who we believe we really are. And so the question I want to ask us this evening is what story are you telling yourself? Are you like the older brother allowing those around you to determine who you are and how you live? Are you like the younger brother, allowing your feelings to determine who you are and how you live? Or are you like the younger brother at the end, allowing God to tell you whose you are and how you live? Because all of us are telling one of those stories.